0: Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Alex. And I'm Oscar. We were random roommates. And now we're random best mates.
1: So in the previous episode, we talked about pretty serious and large institutions that govern our society with Mohit Maki. If you haven't listened to that, give it a listen. But for this episode, we wanted to get a little funky with it. We wanted to explore a realm that neither of us were super familiar with beforehand. We're going to be interviewing Samantha Wesmer.
0: Well, welcome, Sam, to shooting the shit. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, who you are, where you're at right now, how you know us, kind of just some of those details?
2: Sure. Hi. I'm uh, My name is Samantha Wassmer. Uh, I know Alex and Oscar from senior year at Stanford. We all lived in Bob together. I work in the art world. I studied art history when I was at Stanford and did an MA in art history specializing in the 1960s. I've done kind of various jobs and internships in museums, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. I technically live in London and work at the V&A Museum there. But I'm currently in California for the quarantine. But next week, I'll be going back to London and starting work up next month, which is exciting.
0: That's exciting. Congrats on uh, getting to make it back.
2: Oh, thanks. (laughs) It's been like five months. So I'm (laughs) ready.
0: (laughs) About time. Um, No, that's great to hear. I think one of the first things I kind of want to kick things off with is kind of backtracking your journey of how you got into art into both like deciding to study it, make it and just be involved in it and make it, you know, your life in essence, if you could kind of go down that path a bit, that would be great. to hear.
2: (laughs) Okay, sure. So if we're talking, all right, well, let's like bring it all the way back. My first loves art wise, probably wasn't like strict fine art. So like painting sculpture, that kind of stuff. I was mostly really into music and musical theater. I did that all throughout like elementary school, middle school, high school, I always did that. And when I was in high school, I obviously these things kind of touch upon art references and I loved history. And one of my uh, Spanish teachers in high school had a connection at the Dolly Museum in the town that I grew up in, St. Petersburg, Florida. And they had a docent program there where they would teach some kids from the high school about Salvador Dali, who's a surrealist artist, and kind of train them to give tours every now and then to people, locals, and people who visited the museum. And I kind of fell in love with it. I loved the mix of art and history. I thought it was super cool to engage with people and show them all these kind of ins about the works that they were seeing and how that was influenced by the artist's life. And what they saw, what they read, the music that they listened to. It was like all these intersections of things that I loved. And also I just loved museums growing up. I was that lame kid who like <laughs> listened to every single bit of the audio guide when I was like in a museum and my sisters and brother were like zooming through and I was the one who had to like stand in front of the painting and listen to everything. So when I went to Stanford I actually didn't declare art history <laughs> to start. I like went through the whole like hum bio, maybe architectural design and then, oh yeah, I should do art history because that's actually what I love. But I took a couple of classes throughout my like freshman, sophomore year, the classic like Nemirov classes. And, you know, just found out that that's exactly the world that I wanted to live in, Not and not just like as a spectator, but also as a career. And so I just kind of got as much experience as I could did internships and worked in the Cantor at school as well as the Anderson collection and then I took a class at Stanford that like I fell in love with the 60s because that was for me the perfect intersection of social history with art and what I loved most about art or the one the pieces that I was drawn to the most whenever I was studying art were pieces that were influenced by what was going on at the time and kind of bridged that gap between the kind of high art, quote unquote, and the lower art, quote unquote. So I was super into like posters and prints and drawings and things that were easily like distributed and kind of sent out at the time. And there, were, there was a lot of that happening in the 60s. So I studied that for my MA when I was in London. And I got a job at the VNA in theater and performance, their department there. So I kind of did full circle back to music and theater, and I'm kind of figuring that out right now.
0: Been across every area, then at this point, just
2: oh god, <laughs> maybe not every, but a lot for sure.
0: Kind of having gone through this full circle and now coming back into sort of this theater and the performance side of things and I'm sure you're like defining it. So I don't mean to hit you with like the big question, you know, like, what do you see your role as like right now within like this current time period or frame in your life, like within the art world?
2: Well, that is hard. Yeah, um. no, this is
0: like in, in in job interviews where they're like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. Well, <laughs> I,
2: know I, I know what I want to do. Um, if I'm being totally honest, I don't know if I have like the full on power to be doing this right now. But I like what I'm most passionate about in the art world is helping people or ensuring that people see themselves reflected in art. It's so important to me. I feel like there were so many moments for me even where I was like, I don't know anything about the art that I'm entering like seeing here like museums are so stuffy this is super elitist like Mm -hmm. i you know i you feel sometimes like there's this bridge where if you don't know all the ins, if you don't know the story about the artist like you're completely separated from it and i think that's total crap and that like any well anybody can have an engagement with art and like I was super lucky that my like entryway was really well facilitated and also I had like entryways through music and theater and those things are a bit more accessible to people and that's kind of why I've always loved them fine art it's a bit harder sometimes you know the big buildings and all the marble and all that stuff can get like daunting and I think that I really want to find a way for people to have the same kind of experiences that I've had because art is for everybody (laughs) and I feel like I've been saved by art so many times over seeing works that you know resonate with me and I feel seen in it and I think that you know it took me a while to get there but when I did it was life-changing and I want that for other people as well so that's my goal can I necessarily do that in the position I'm in right now maybe not so much but I'm trying in my small ways.
1: Can you can you take us behind the scenes a little bit I'm gonna do like a a classic like what's the problem and solution thing like what's the you mentioned like oh I'm not like in kind of like the position of power I don't have the power to like do this and then you also mentioned the idea of museums being very like stuffy and elitist from your perspective Can you like bring us behind the scenes as to like what it takes to, I guess, enter this world of like fine arts, like museum, like whether it's curating or just being like part of like the behind the scenes work?
2: So I personally started by doing a lot of poorly paid, if not unpaid internships, which is hard to begin with. A lot of times to get a position that is the title of assistant curator or curator where you're actually doing the like primary research that goes into picking pieces to go into an exhibition writing the actual like labels that go into an exhibition a lot of times not all the time it requires a master's or a phd and that's really hard to finance that and also you know take out that time in your life to do that so that is like barrier probably one two and three But also, you know, museums are a lot of times big museums are institutions that have funding from donors, and that Mm. kind of stuff has a whole set of politics to it, too. And a lot of times, museums, if they are like nationally funded or if they're making their own money, they have to pick not have to pick, but a lot of times choose to pick exhibitions that they think will be lucrative, will bring people in the door. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes it um, prevents them from taking certain risks. And a lot of times they'll go with the, the heavy hitters and the recognizable names, not always lifting up some amazing artists that aren't always exhibited in these places and then when they are exhibited they aren't always given especially when it comes to contemporary artists they aren't given the same like money or dues that they're meant to with other counterparts uh that are a bit more socially um have a bit more social purchase we'll say but yeah sorry i feel like that might not have been asking uh, answering your question no that is uh, but yes, yeah, so those are those are the kinds of things that can can get in the way when you're you're making uh, or proposing making an exhibition. And then also just general logistics of if you don't have these works in your collection, it's a matter of either, having to acquire or borrow them from other museums, other people, and like that's a whole other thing about which institutions you have a good relationship with, whether or not you can actually get it over borders, like all those kinds of things. It's, you know, a lot of times it requires couriers being sent out to go and transport art. You know, you can't just like ship it on like a luggage in a, on a plane always, and that also costs a lot of money and budgets are tight um, a lot of times for exhibitions, even like big ones. So that's also why a lot of uh, museums will partner with corporate partners and they'll fund certain aspects and certain big exhibitions. And then obviously that brings in a whole other interest group.
1: I'm sure. From your perspective, do you think that this, uh, like the influence of like corporations and politics in the museum world, do you feel like this is like a whole system that's broke and we need to find like a new way of reaching that vision of art being for everyone or do you feel like it can be reformed and I'm gonna not draw the obvious analogy to other yeah. big things in life but we'll focus on the museum part
2: oh god it depends on the museum that you're looking at to be completely honest I think that there are some museums that might need to be like torn down of it. um uh-huh. <laughs> And might need to be reworked from the ground up because if we're also looking at museums who have a lot of, like, social clout, a lot of their collection, a lot of the reason why they have a lot of social purchase is because they have collections that were built on colonialism, imperialism, looting, all those kinds of things. Like. We can get into a whole conversation about art restitution and these big museums that a lot of times are in the U.S. and the U.K., definitely the U.K., that have these collections that they haven't ever had to pay countries where they stole these works from and these countries are requesting them back all these kinds of stuff i don't really know if that's something that can be reformed that and that's to me is a big part of it i know that doesn't necessarily touch on corporations but you know when the works that you're presenting and the works that you're pulling from aren't truly yours and weren't got through you know genuine means then i think that that's that's a really root problem with other with other museums that like say you have acquired all of them through sales or donations or you know people giving it to the uh giving it to the museum I think there can be reform done I mean it is no secret that there is a lack of BIPOC people in museum positions and I think that if you were to (laughs) allow more people in and obviously there are barriers to that there could be a lot of work done there I've seen amazing exhibitions be put on and like amazing like curators come out of these big institutions who I super respect and think are going to change the art world so I don't necessarily think everything needs to be torn down yet (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) I think that like there I mean it, it stands like a massive reform for sure.
1: Okay, so start with the heavy. We'll tear down the heavy hitters first, and then we'll see where we're at there.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some amazing museums, like my my favorite museum that I've ever been to is uh, the Underground Museum in LA. It was founded as like a community museum by artist Noah Davis, and he was trying to, I mean, it's an amazing museum. You When I was there, at least, it's very inconspicuous. It's you like just pass it on the street, um, and you walk in, and there are people there, are super warm and wonderful. And then they've got this amazing, like, kind of maybe one or two gallery rooms that show the works. Their like labels are so well written, and then they have this beautiful garden in the back, and it's kind of a community space for everybody who's there. And it's not just like. It's a place to kind of stay and spend time with art and not just kind of walk through and check off the list on like your tourist like pamphlet or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the way that he started out, Noah Davis, is that he was trying to lend from massive museums in LA and they wouldn't lend to him because he, I guess, didn't have enough financial backing or I forget what the actual issue was, but he ended up just making remade he was an artist himself so he remade all of these works and called it imitations of wealth i'm pretty sure is the name of the exhibition oh, wow. <laughs> and that was like the first exhibition that he did there and he then got a deal with the uh with mocha and they started kind of lending works to them and now it's one of the best museums that I've been to and that I think is like a perfect model of for me what a museum could look like where it's just letting people spend time with art and not I don't know with none of those barriers there
0: no I'll have to check that out now when I go back home to LA or once things oh please up again. do
2: please do and send me pictures
0: with kind of what you mentioned on this I know we talked about like this high level institutional systemic approach of you know the large museums where do you see kind of the role of these smaller museums that do have that easier accessibility coming into play? You know, do we try to get more of these going? I know it's difficult with a lot of financial barriers and things, but you know, like this was an example where where Noah Davis yeah. managed to get to the point where then there was a relationship with MOCA. Is that like the aim of it? Cause I feel like in my opinion, you know, from personal experience, I never grew up really going to museums, like any art I like ever saw was like street art in LA and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. So it's like smaller things like this seem like way more approachable than, I don't know, showing up to the Getty or something like that. Like, is it easier to have like more of these just exist or like individual artists that set up spaces for themselves and fellow artists?
2: I mean, they are all around. I mean, in big cities, you'll see them in like LA and New York, there are all these kinds of alternative art spaces. So I'm not to say that, like, I'm not trying to say that these don't exist or anything like that. They absolutely do. But I think... It would be great to have more of it. I think that having it on that level is amazing, but I think that there's also this kind of thought process that a museum, like this idea that it has to look a certain way and that it has to be certain, like, I don't know, a certain level of fancy or whatever. I, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But I think that it's it also has to do with what works you can get in there because a lot of these more kind of inclusive art spaces revolve around uh contemporary artists who are showing there and all that kind of stuff when you go like far back into like renaissance art and that kind of stuff that's harder because also these works need to be preserved at a certain level because they're you know they're very old so like even medieval works all these kinds of things there there is a place for these big institutions in the sense that they can fund this level of conservation. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I, I I don't know if I know of a small museum and I, there are so many museums that I don't know of. I don't know that much. So um, <laughs> uh, there, there's probably some small museum that is able to like take care of antiquities and everything, but it has to be climate controlled, and it's all these kinds of very intense levels of conservation that have to happen to let these works be held where they are. So that that's a bit tough, but I think that it would be great to see smaller museums kind of crop up and have them be community-based and for the people who actually live there versus, I don't know, maybe the people who are paying for it, if that makes sense. I
1: have a, uh, might be a curveball question, but I promise I'm not trying to like... <laughs>
2: no, go for it.
1: So you worked as a docent. And at least my perception, and you can correct this if I'm wrong, my perception of the docent is like people who will kind of like try and guide you along and like kind of describe like the background of the art. So, how do you reconcile like the role of the docent with the idea that like art is like for the people and has to be like accessible? You know, there's like a weird like intelligence. Like or like knowledge gap.
2: Yeah, not a curveball at all. Um, <laughs> oh, you're so, prepped. <laughs> no, no, not that I, not that I'm prepped, but I definitely like went through this myself because my. Understanding of museums before going to Stanford was okay. I go to this museum, I get on the docent tour, and they tell me what to think about the art. They're gonna tell me everything, and I'm gonna absorb it and learn it, and then I'll walk out being an expert, or not an expert, but like knowing a bit more. But when I went to Stanford and I did the training for to be a guide at the Cantor, at least I was super thrown because I was like, okay, like tell me all about it, and then I'll remember it and I'll tell it all. I'll, like I'll tell it to the people who come in. They're like, oh no, like we're gonna have a conversation with the. People and like, we're gonna ask them questions and then you know have a conversation about it. And at first, I was like, oh, I don't really know if that's <laughs> like what it's not. The- I didn't want to have a conversation with people, but I had been so accustomed to learning all these things because I thought that I needed to learn these things in order to understand the work. And yes, like there are some works that you definitely benefit from learning different bits and pieces, but that isn't to say that like, if you come across a like artwork that you know nothing about and you just look at it and you say you love the color of it and that brings you joy, like that is a great interaction with art. Like, that is amazing in my mind. And you can like walk away and not know the artist's name and you can still just be able to leave and say that was a really pretty blue and, you know, enjoy that. But in any case, so when I did the training for it, I had to kind of reset my thinking. And now any of the tours that I give, I don't really give tours anymore, but when I did give tours, so I very much based it on the people who are coming in And I met them. I tried my best to meet them where they were and ask them questions about, well, you see this work of art, like, what's the first thing you notice about it? And then they guide me through that. And then I say, oh, actually, like, I see that you liked this color. The so-and-so artist was inspired by the views of California while they were growing up or something like that. And it's it's not it's kind of an exchange. And I think that I had to definitely learn to to have that conversation and like relinquish some control in that. But it's so much better that way in my mind. And I think that the people, or at least I hope that some of the people, at least that I had conversations with, left feeling like they could go to a museum and just approach a work of art and have, an experience with it that wasn't necessarily facilitated by a docent, or maybe it was and maybe they learn like what their name was and what year it was made and what it was inspired by but that's not like the only thing they get from it they're able to like look at it and say oh what do I see first how does it make me feel what do I think about that kind of thing. And it's not like that in all museums. <laughs> I mean, in big museums, they'll still give you like audio guides and there'll still be labels that tell you all this information. And there's a hierarchy in that. There's some, if you go to a museum, you'll notice there are some labels that are just like tombstone labels. So it's got the name, the artist, the year, the material, probably who donated it, what the museum like number, like uh, I guess like cataloging number is. And that's about it sometimes they'll have like a short label that'll give a little bit of info and sometimes an extended label. And if you would ask like high school me, I would have been like, give extended labels for all of them. (laughs) Like tell (laughs) everybody everything. But I have become a fan of the tombstone (laughs) and short ones because then it doesn't tell people as much what they need to be seeing. It tells them maybe the, the bare minimum of what they need if they do need anything and then hopefully the, the idea is that then they would have some tools to like look at it and then if they wanted to find out more hopefully the museum would have materials for them to like learn a bit more as well but then hopefully it kind of takes out a bit of the hierarchy of like somebody from the museum telling you exactly what to do right
0: about it. on some of those kind of tours that you gave when you were at the cantor did you ever come across like difficult situations where people like didn't want you even like telling them anything about it or cases where they thought you were telling them way too much and you're like no kind of let me do my thing I just want to go or like how do you manage that balance because I can imagine that there's like varying expectations that people come in with when they're like there to see art you know yeah anything like that
2: (laughs) So I, I never really had anybody who didn't want me telling them things because okay. you could opt to be in the tour or not. So if they didn't want to hear anything, they usually didn't go, go on the tour. But I, I very often went in with people who didn't want to talk to me, um, <laughs> <they> like <laughs> wanted to be told what to say. And so I learned very early on that I had to start it and say, we're going to have conversations about the works that we see. I'm going to ask you questions, um, nothing like I'm not trying to trip you up or anything like that. It's mostly just for both of us to learn something about the work. And there were many times in which when I was looking at a painting or a sculpture or something, somebody would point something out and I would say, oh, yeah, like I had never noticed that before. And I had to get super comfortable with people asking me very specific questions or something and me not always knowing the answer to it. And that that was hard. I did not like not knowing <laughs> the answers. <laughs> but it was it was a good experience. And I think that it was is most hard when I had people who didn't want to talk to me and or at least felt very uncomfortable it happened the most with the anderson collection actually because that's mostly like abstract expressionism these these artworks that like people don't necessarily feel is very approachable because if you look at like a painting of from like the hudson school where it's a massive painting of yosemite or something like that you know people can talk about it and usually identify bits and pieces but if you're looking at a Rothko or Jackson Pollock people don't really know what to say about it always and that can be super daunting it was super daunting to me when I first started abstract art I was didn't get it I didn't think that it made any sense to me those are my dogs um
1: do they need something are they okay no
2: I think they just saw oh there's someone walking their dog uh, and so they're, gotta protect they're, the home grounds yeah, thank you They do. but anyways with the Anderson collection I usually had to start the conversation. Like I would, I would provide something for people. Like there was this one work and I feel bad now because I actually don't remember who the artist was, but I remember what it looked like. And I was asking people like what they thought or what they saw and no one wanted to respond. I had to get comfortable with like kind of sitting in silence and waiting for people to respond for a bit, kind of playing that, you know, mental game of chicken. I usually gave in and I would say I was like oh the colors remind me of like the Kellogg's brand and it had nothing to do with the artist or what you know we were actually looking at but it's it started a conversation because I think that so much at least with what I experienced was people were afraid that like they were going to say something stupid or they were going to say something wrong. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times with abstract art, it's there's very little that can be wrong, um, because it's so abstract. But it's super daunting still at the same time. So that was probably one of the, the harder harder times when I had to kind of get people to speak. But no one was ever really super blatantly awful to me.
0: <laughs> I That's think good. that maybe I think that
2: maybe there was one time. I'm sh- I yeah. I think there was one time where there was someone who was kind of rude. Um, and wanted to like serve me up a bit or like show off. And that was a bit annoying. Yeah, some backseat dosing thing. Yeah, some something like that. Um, But you know, you kind of just have to smile and be like, oh yeah, you know, that's that's not untrue. Yes, okay. And, And then you kind of just move on and make sure that the other people are also getting something out of it. When there's a group of people, that was sometimes hard. Also when they were little kids, that was I always kind of loved it when there was a kid in there because they're not afraid to talk at all they like just will tell you about anything and I actually really enjoyed it but it's hard sometimes when you've got like a parent with their child and then like two grandparents who are there for the weekend visiting their you know grand grandchild and you know they're not necessarily on the same like expectations of what the tour will be so that was interesting but yeah nothing super awful.
0: Right on. One other thing we wanted to kind of dig into, in addition to being a docent is sort of this documentary that you got to work on, um, and how you got into that space. And you mentioned yeah. art from the 60s. And yeah, take it away of just like giving us. Some yeah,
2: I it was very much a like, right place at the right time kind of thing. I was just super lucky I had finished my well no I actually hadn't finished my master's I was in the middle of working I did I was working at the V&A as like a contracted like researcher for the theater and performance department while I was also finishing up my master's that was a lot of well, a lot of like time the library or in the museum and not much else but I had mentioned to them that I was doing my master's in the 60s I like, loved the 60s and they had had an exhibition in 2016 on like 1966 to 1970 and that like time and the whole like cultural shift that happened all across like fashion, politics, music, everything at the time. And they were putting together a documentary based on these interviews that they had had with key figures of the 60s at the time. They had uh, one of the people who worked, who works in the VNA, Emily Harris, is a great like filmmaker director. And she uh, was putting together this documentary based on these interviews that she had done for the exhibition. She had like gone to California and New York um, and interviewed people all around uh, and even in like London too, people like Yoko Ono and uh, Stuart Brand, like all these amazing people from the 60s. I could like go on and name a bunch of people. <laughs> I was like super excited, like very much like, oh, please, like let me help <laughs> you with this. And... They one, one of the girls who was helping out with it was like transitioning out of the department and I, honestly I think they were just looking for something for me to do and they like paired me up with Emily and they're like oh can you like take a look at this cut that we have the documentary and let us know what you think and of course me like being super into it I like was super intense with in my notes like at this point I feel like you could switch around here and do this and do that and maybe you could mention this person and I was so excited and I think I just got on really well with the director because she was like oh wow like you really are into this like you want to be a part of this like let me take you on which was super awesome and so from that point we worked a lot together on changing that cut that we had which was like pretty rough at the time um, into something that was like a proper like documentary film Um, and our like kind of deadline was the Mill Valley Film Festival last year in October. It was a agreed based on that rough cut that they would let this documentary into the film festival which was like super fantastic but we needed to kind of finish it up and so Emily and I worked on doing that like finding from like fitting in more interviews different bits changing the entire structure around and all that kind of stuff and like working on rights to music because that's a huge thing especially in the 60s to music was super essential and also anytime you uh, have music in anything you need to like clear the rights that that was like a big hurdle to jump over and like footage rights as well because a lot of it was archival footage um, that we kind of inter interlocked with these interviews and so that was probably one of the best things that I've been a part of um, in my career it was just so eye-opening and wonderful I got to sit in on a couple of interviews and I even found I was like super excited because when I looked at the film at the time there weren't I personally noticed there was a lack of the IPOC people in there. There's only a handful. And I thought really hard to include more people in there. And I was able to get one more person in there to talk about because I, I, a lot of the time with the 60s, they had like black figures talk about obviously like the Black Panther movie. And the civil rights movement, but they weren't talking about other things that were happening in the 60s. So there was a lot of other things that were happening at the time too, like the Black is Beautiful movement, and there was this incredible photographer who was doing all these fashion shows and photographing these beautiful, like black models at the time. And they, their wife, who was also a model at the time, agreed to do an interview with us. And I like. <laughs> was like calling these people over the time change and everything to try and secure them. And then I did and they made it in the final cut, which was like really exciting for me to have like helped that happen. And the the film premiered in October in the Mill Valley Film Festival and it did really well. It sold out twice and it showed in showed it was supposed to go to supposed to go to other film festivals, but obviously COVID and everything kind of got in the way. But we're looking now at like other lives for it, educational uses, that kind of thing. Um, hopefully renewing some of the like rights contracts. Cause sometimes if you don't have the renewal rights, then it's kind of dead in the water after a year. But yeah, that was an incredible experience. I got to meet like some really, really fantastic people and yeah, just have great conversations with these people who were there at the time and super socially tumultuous and there was just a lot going on. And like, it's no secret that people have like compared the sixties to what's going on now um, in terms of like social revolution and everything. And so it was just really cool to hear what people thought about that time and how it compares to now. Yeah, it was just awesome experience.
1: Yeah, Sounds like it. Did you feel like there was a, a pattern or like main takeaways from these like essentially like living legends from the time Did they have any like major takeaways on how things are comparing back then to now?
2: Yeah. So the main, main takeaway, it was really cool because at the end, like all of these people who are working done in the sixties are still doing stuff now. Like they're still pushing for change to happen. And basically the takeaway is that like, it's, it's a long road, but it, you need to keep going. It needs to keep happening. And like the, 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 main thrust of like most social revolutions happen in the younger generation and so much of it was like them imparting the wisdom to like keep fighting keep moving and like you know don't like settle for what's going on now and like sometimes it will look different than what you think it will (laughs) like in terms of how you're like called to help and take part in things a lot of times it's Not just like these some of these people were helping out through art and revolting through that like rebelling through that and that can be so, so big like change in art and media and culture is so important because that's where people usually like engage with ideas, you know, not everybody is super into like listening to politics podcasts and reading every little bit of news. But like when it shows up in a TV show that you're watching, or when you're like, you know, listening to a song that has lyrics about this kind of thing, like it, it kind of invades your world and then you have to look up and listen and pay attention to what's going on. So it's super important to kind of speak up whenever you can.
1: Yeah.
0: Was there any interview or individual that you met that like stuck with you, you know, like a person that like you got engaged with that like you either resonated with or were like, oh, wow, that was just like powerful or an immense experience and like talking to.
2: Yeah, um, well, a lot of the people who were interviewed uh, were done before I came on. A few people that happened after me, they were all pretty fantastic. One person who I thought was just, so cool was this woman named Denise Kaufman she was and is a part of this uh all-girl rock band that was popular in the 60s in Hate ashbury they opened for Jimi Hendrix but they never got signed at the time because they were an all-girl band and no one really mm-hmm. knew how to handle them all that kind of stuff they broke up um went about their separate ways lived all their like their full lives. And now they've come back together and they've like released multiple albums since then they got signed and they're, like total rock stars now and it was just really cool because when I met I got to meet her in person um, and we just had a great conversation for the interview or anything I was actually in California at the time and she was uh, recording with her her group they're called the ace of cups and we just spent a really lovely afternoon in California talking for uh, a few hours and I just kind of picked her brain about everything that she'd gone through she in the 60s was obviously in hate Ashbury but she also was a Part of the Mary Pranksters. And uh, she also did a lot of, she was a part of the Free Speech Movement at Berkeley as well. And so also was a part of protest then. And uh, yeah, we just had a really wonderful time. Uh, and she, for me really, she struck this like balance between like standing up for what you believe in and obviously taking action, protesting, but then also doing things that were really important to her like music and like living that out in her life, which I found really inspiring and awesome. So that was, that was a great interview, but there were so many other people who I just, I listened to their like bits of the film and I, they still kind of like hit me (laughs) because they're so incredible and inspiring.
0: No, that sounds like a fantastic experience to be able to like, just have and like, I can't imagine like where you go back and you see it and it's like, you remember it or it's still just like, you know, hits the right notes with you seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You kind of mentioned sort of uh, this talk with Denise Kaufman about how it kind of revealed this balance between like producing art, speaking your mind, and kind of all of this. You yourself are an artist, you produce things as well. And so, wanted to kind of step into this next segment of sort of, you know, where you also kind of have a role in the art world as an artist. Like, can you describe, you know, whether that's on the musical side? or drawing, painting, whatever it is, kind of how you see that component in the mix of everything else that you're trying to do with making art for everybody and things like that.
2: Yeah, oh God, that's like, you know, when I talk about this, it's like getting into like dream kind of stages. Um, because I'm like, so super, I'm st- I feel like I'm still super, I don't know, early in my kind of Exploration of being an artist myself or a creative, I'll say, if that's not too annoying. <laughs> no, 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 okay. uh, I like it. <laughs> but I think for so long, I personally didn't give myself the the like kind of space to be able to call myself that or to to try it out myself. I always kind of saw it as like a side hobby because I had studied art and music and everything for so long, I was daunted by how incredible all these people were. And I'm like, you know, they live their entire lives, eat, sleeping, breathing, nothing but music or literature or art. And I'm all over the place. Like I, you know, have I spent the last like how many hours yesterday watching Grey's Anatomy. Like, am I really on the <laughs> same level of these people? Probably not. Could I get there? Maybe. But for a long time, that kept me from really stepping into that world, but I've always wanted it for myself. So I think that ideally, I I don't know, I, that's hard. Cause like, obviously if I'm like dreaming super big, I want to, oh, sorry.
0: Your <laughs> supporters You're are good. here. They're out here supporting saying you are an artist.
2: So if I'm like thinking super big, super dreaming, I kind of just want somebody to, see my work and feel like something resonates with them. They like feel a bit more maybe comforted or seen maybe by what I make. I'm not quite sure if I'm at that level yet. Cause I'm still all over the place. Like sometimes I'll write something and some days I'll draw and sometimes I'll sing and I'll think, Oh, maybe I'll do this or oh, I'll do that. And I'll do that. I feel like I kind of have to pick a lane, which might not be true, but I feel that way some days, but that's the ultimate goal. Uh, I think because As much as I I do create for myself and I like doing it for myself, I have that thing in the back of my mind where I want to have some sort of impact on somebody where even if it's just like a silly kind of illustration or a cartoon where, I don't know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, stand up and change the world kind of thing, but they see it and they're like, oh, wow, that is me laying on the floor, not really knowing what to do other than drink wine and pet my dogs kind of thing. Um <laughs> but I think that's where I see hopefully whatever I make in my future dream worlds to be cuz I don't know, I just love that feeling where you like read something and like you kind of just feel in your gut that it's it like really hits you and you get a bit of goosebumps or you get that with a song or I don't know sometimes for me when I look at a work of art like I kind of get that feeling if we really want to get into theory there's like a whole kind of idea uh about that called a punctum where like something kind of just pricks you where you can't you look at a work of art or you do something and you something about it pricks you and you don't know you can't pinpoint what it is and it's special for each person it might not impact like what pricks you oscar won't maybe do that for alex but it it gets to you on another level and that's That's my hope is that maybe one time I'll make one work that does that for somebody.
0: (laughs) Well, if I, I just want to shout you out on, so for those of you listening, Sam drew me a Jacob's ladder. I don't even know what it's called in Spanish, but it's like a Mexican folding ladder toy. And what was the term you used? The prick. What's the formal word?
2: I'm
0: not going to try to repeat it, but that, that happened to me when she drew it. So I just want to, you know, shout out Sam on that. Cause like when I saw that, it's a story that I used to play with at my grandma's house. We no longer have it. I don't know where it is. So this drawing is the closest thing to having something like that. So I just want to say you are very much on your way on that. Um, oh,
2: thank you. I'm so glad to hear that.
0: We're all about dreaming big here. Alex and I sometimes like to talk as if we had a million listeners on this podcast.
1: Don't yeah. you? Our own studio space. And this is our only source where of income. The studio
2: audience? I thought they were just behind that curtain. <laughs> yeah. Hey,
0: guys. So no, we are appreciate hearing your vision on this end of things. We're coming in on time, so we want to kind of uh, wrap things up with a hopefully fun finale that we'd like to do with our guests. Is just a couple of uh, rapid fire questions.
2: Oh no, I'm so indecisive. This is gonna be awful. I'm gonna regret it when I hear this back.
0: <laughs> but they're they're not too crazy. Hopefully, no, I think these
1: might these might be a little crazy, but we'll give it a yeah. shot.
0: Um, so this one's uh, coming from me. You like music. You have a fabulous voice. You know, what? Are, who is your top artist right now that you're listening to? Who do you got on repeat? Uh, oh,
2: no. Okay. I super, I love Joni Mitchell. So I've been listening to her kind of off and on throughout quarantine so she is kind of she's not necessarily oh god it's hard I can't say she's my favorite artist but I, I am listening to her a lot right now so that I'm listening to her and SZA I'm listening to Control many times over I've loved that album since it came out I heard that her second album is coming hopefully in the fall some I've read some tweet that it was coming in like September or October I know this is rapid fire but them to is who I'm listening to right awesome.
1: now. Quick plug for SZA. All right, uh, next one, what's your favorite art medium?
2: Prince.
1: Prince.
0: Next one, this one's a rougher one.
2: <laughs>
1: Why did you do this one, Oscar? <laughs> no, I don't know. So just say it, just say it, it's rapid fire. Oh.
0: OK, would you rather like not be able to have a nice singing voice or not be able to like draw well?
2: I'd rather not be able to draw well. OK. Can I get my rationale or do you not? Yeah, it? no, no, go yeah, for it. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Um, because there's some people like drawing well is so subjective like drawing like realistically I guess is draw well but like there's so many people who have drawn pretty shit and have still had like great careers (laughs) and like made their like own way so if I needed to do that I could but I'm pretty sure that if I I was like totally tone deaf no one would want to hear me ever sing ever again so
1: that's a that's a smart response yeah And to wrap it up, can you give your best estimate, maybe within five times, um, your best estimate for the number of times you've danced to September?
2: Oh, my God. Oh, God. Do I need to give a backstory for this to explain? No, okay, never mind. (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) No, 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 no. Okay. Oh, God. Twenty five, thirty times maybe wow yeah any family gathering we have a specific like choreographed dance to september i don't know if that's what you're referencing yeah
1: that's exactly that <laughs> yeah
2: so anytime we've like gotten together it's been played so a, a good good handful of times and then anytime it was, was played at stanford i made all my friends do it with me so there's amazing that.
1: and then m- multiply that out like Tens, dozens of times to to calculate the number of times people have danced this
0: specific choreograph. Choreography, yeah. Yeah. Within (laughs) my
2: family alone, it's a good like extra 20 people (laughs) who know the (laughs) dance, so it's like a lot.
0: Amazing. There you have it, folks. One last thing we want to allow you to do anything you want to plug, Sam, any accounts to follow, any things to look out for that you're working on, the name of your documentary. I don't know.
2: Oh, God. Well, if you're in LA checking out the underground museum would be awesome. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. I could like probably go on, but yeah, the, do that. And then my, my art Instagram is little weird drawings if you really want to see if I'm any good. Um,
0: awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time and uh, getting to hear your thoughts on everything.
2: I appreciate you guys. Thanks for letting me ramble and not really yeah. answer rapid fire answers.
1: Thank you, Sam.